0: Um, well happy Friday everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm really happy today to introduce um, Dr. Tim Girard. Uh, Dr. Gerard is at the University of Pittsburgh um, and I first heard him speak at the University of Pittsburgh and then subsequently heard him a couple of times after that, and found um, his work very compelling. Uh, and then he recently published in the Blue Journal this year a paper that I sent out to each of you um, about an hour ago for you to read. Um, he does some very impressive work looking at uh, inflammation during critical illness and, and cognitive impacts of this. Um, but just as a little bit of background on Dr. Gerard, so he did his um, residency in internal medicine at University of Virginia, and then did his fellowship training at Vanderbilt University, where he also got a master's of science in clinical investigation, and then was recruited to University of Pittsburgh, where he's been working for uh, a little while now. Um, like I said, he does lots of work in inflammation and critical illness. And so t- today, he's going to talk to us about inflammation during critical illness, delirium and long-term cognitive impairment. Um, Dr. Gerard, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to hear you talk today.
1: Uh, you're welcome, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, I, I'm happy to be there. I wish I could be there in person. That that would be much more fun. So uh, as you heard, I'm going to speak about inflammation, critical illness, delirium, and, and long-term cognitive impairment. And um, before I go forward, I should say that I have, well, if I can, there we go. I have a couple disclosures. One is that my work is grant-funded um, mostly by NHLBI at this time. I've had a um, NIA funding in the past as well. I have one commercial disclosure which uh, relates to doing consultants work for Haysco Pharmaceuticals, but uh, it's unrelated to the subject of this presentation. So I'm actually gonna go in sort of a reverse order. Instead of talking about inflammation first, I'm gonna end my presentation uh, highlighting for you some data regarding the relationship between inflammation and these clinical syndromes, delirium, cognitive impairment, But I'm going to start with a case presentation for for a few reasons. One is to uh, make this sort of real and put it in the clinical context, uh, but also to highlight that uh, this does not affect, that is, cognitive impairment and delirium, just uh, older, frail patients who come in to the ICU with a critical illness and a very high risk for these outcomes, but even younger patients who have relatively low risk at baseline. So this uh, case is a a real patient that uh, I and colleagues saw in Nashville when I was working at Vanderbilt. It was published as a case report in 2009. You can see there the the reference at the bottom if you're interested in learning more. Uh, As I said, specifically chose a a younger patient. This was a 49-year-old female that didn't have uh, much in the way of comorbid, comorbid illness. She had mild asthma and that's all prior to her acute illness. And she came in with a little over a week of fevers, chills, sore throat, cough. You know, if, if this were in present day, you'd probably be worried that she had COVID. But uh, because it was over 10 years ago, you know, she was viewed as having likely having an acute uh, lower respiratory tract infection. She had a fever. She had sort of all the systemic inflammatory response syndrome signs that you can see there. And she was hypoxemic. So this is a woman with a fever, hypoxemia. She has organ dysfunction in the setting of of a suspected infection, so she has sepsis. In addition to that, she was very hypoxemic, uh, even once she was mechanically ventilated. And you can see that her initial chest X-ray prior to, or actually this is uh, post-intubation, showed diffuse alveolar infiltrates consistent with ARDS. So, So this is a classic, uh, patient with bacterial pneumonia, most likely leading to ARDS with severe hypoxemic respiratory failure. So sepsis and ARDS, what happened to her? Classic case, not necessarily, but, but quite severe in terms of her outcomes. And uh, this patient ended up spending more than a month in the ICU. She did survive after 31 days of mechanical ventilation, three weeks roughly of that. we in a drug-induced coma. That's fortunately less common now than it was 15 years ago when this case occurred, uh, but, the, but it does still occur, and now we're seeing it more often with COVID patients, as, as you all know from your own experience. Once she was Awake enough to be assessed for delirium. She was delirious for more than a week. She had multiple forms of organ dysfunction, not just respiratory failure, not just brain dysfunction, but renal dysfunction, cardiovascular dysfunction. So she had the whole the whole shebang in terms of all the different organ dysfunctions that you see in AR- severe ARDS and sepsis. And but but she did survive, probably in large part due to the fact that she was young and healthy at baseline, uh, but also because care has gotten better over time for these syndromes. She had an MRI during her hospital stay. This is certainly not uh, something that I typically do when I'm treating patients with ARDS and sepsis. I don't think it's a part of the normal approach to care in these patients, but she actually had what appeared to be a seizure at one point, uh, day 31, you can see there in her course that led to to this MRI. And it did not find anything focal, but she did have these diffuse white abnormal white matter areas and hyperintensities, uh, as shown here. I mostly show the MRI, because we're going to come back to this uh, at, at a later point, where I, I, I'm going to show you a follow-up scan. So as I said, she survived. And this is becoming more and more common. We've seen that over time, and this data uh, that were shown by Stevenson et al, in critical care medicine go back to 1992, but you can go back even further and see that over time, the the outcomes, at least in terms of mortality, are improving for sepsis and ARDS. And some of that may be due to specific interventions, certainly ARDS outcomes have improved with low tidal volume ventilation, but much of it is probably attributable to just a general better understanding of how to care for these patients and how to reduce the harm that we may have been doing to them in the past. She recovered ultimately, but it was a lengthy rehabilitation process. And uh, she did not, as you'll see here on the bottom of the slide, fully recover to her previous baseline. Uh, When she was discharged from the acute care hospital, she was identified as or labeled as acute and oriented times three and cognitively intact. I I point that out because I want to make the point here that even if a patient is oriented, that does not mean that their cognition is returned to baseline. And it's not something that we typically assess in detail prior to discharging a patient who's recovered from acute non neurologic illness. She spent three weeks in inpatient rehab. Then she went home and spent a month there before returning to work. Now, her work was actually not a physically taxing, but was more cognitively taxing. She was an executive at a corporation in Nashville. And when she went back to work, remember, this is about seven weeks after her discharge from the hospital, she spent a full month doing part-time work and then attempted to go back to full-time work. And the reason I say attempted is because she never really was able to do the work that she had done in the past. And she'd been a highly successful executive who was widely regarded as, as excellent at her, at her job. And these are the things that she said in, the, in these last four bullet points were preventing her from doing her work, from returning to baseline. She, she had difficulty with energy and stamina. She would, she would get worn out early in the day. She also had difficulty concentrating because she would have recurrent intrusive thoughts, so some PTSD-like symptoms. She also had a lot of difficulty with organization planning and and what she called multitasking. We we could argue about whether or not multitasking is is even a real cognitive function, but her ability to sort of do multiple things in in quick succession or switch from one task to the other was, was clearly impaired, and that was something that was important for her work. And she, and, and it wasn't for lack of trying. And I really want to make this point here. She, for all the world, wanted to get back to her baseline. She wanted to be able to do cognitively what she had done before. And it's unfortunately sometimes a common perception that patients who are recovered from an acute illness just don't have the motivation that they had before. But often they want to do what they did before, they're just not able. And in her case, she tried for three years before she ultimately retired. And this is not a unique story. There are a lot of patients that experience this. And I've spent some time on this specific case to sort of drive home that this is happening to real people. But I'm going to show you data um, from studies that included hundreds of patients to, to uh, hopefully convince you that these are not the rare uh, com- exceptions, but it actually happen quite commonly. <clears throat> We've known for a long time that disability occurs uh, or affects patients after critical illness. These are data that were published in in the early 90s out of the University of Pittsburgh, long before I was here, uh, examining patients who survived critical illness and looking at their dependence on ADLs or activities of daily living. And what this study showed is that at baseline, certainly there are some patients who end up with, with Critical illness that are dependent at baseline. And, and I should have explained ADLs or activities of daily living, if, you, if you're not familiar, are some really basic activities. These are things like being able to, to groom yourself, being able to go to the bathroom without assistance, being able to eat, being able to brush your teeth. You know, these are very basic tasks. Uh, they're not cognitively burdensome necessarily, but they are, are frequently impaired after critical illness, especially early on, and that improves over time, but it never really returns to baseline. Now, why, why do these patients have disability? Well, one reason is because their physical function is impaired, and we've seen by studies like this one by Margaret and at University of Toronto and many others that after ARDS, after sepsis, and even after general critical illness, sort of a heterogeneous group of, of illnesses, patients do not necessarily return to their baseline physical function. If you look on the right side of this graph, if you're familiar with the six minute walk test, you'll, you, you may, you'll understand the numbers on the left y-axis. But if, if you're not familiar, look at the right side, the y-axis here, you see this is the present, present, I'm sorry, percent predicted that patients were able to walk in six minutes. And you see that even five years after ARDS, survivors don't get back to their baseline. The majority of them only reaching about 75%. So some of disability after critical illness, ARDS and sepsis, is attributable to physical impairments. And it's not just basic activities of daily living. It's also instrumental activities of daily living. So these are common tasks that you would do in everyday life but may require a little bit more cognitive function and not just purely, uh, well, not even the ADLs are not purely physical, but they are more basic. And, and, but IADLs would be things like, you know, driving, navigating your neighborhood, finding your car keys, remembering how to, or do balancing your checkbook, things like this. And when Jack Washington and others use the health and retirement study data, to determine whether there was an increase in ADL and IADL disabilities for patients who had sepsis, you can see here that there was a significant increase, not only in mild to moderate, but also in severe disability. So even those, for example, shown with the purple line here, who started out with severe disabilities, they got worse, as well as those who had mild disability at baseline, and those who had no disability at baseline. So no one was immune from this effect. Everyone got worse on average when you look at these three groups after sepsis. And it's not just disability, but it's other symptoms such as psychological symptoms, depression and PTSD and cognitive impairment that might not necessarily show up in any of these disability assessments. You know, all of the types of problems, cognitive and otherwise, that the patient that I described to you was having would not have registered at all on those disability assessments because she was able to do all of her ADLs and IADLs. But what she wasn't able to do is the other tasks that were part of her regular life. So when we looked at patients who had recovered from acute respiratory failure, these are all ICU patients who were mechanically ventilated during an acute illness, and then followed during their period of survival up to 12 months later, first on the right-hand side, you see that a substantial number had died, up to 50%. So these patients are at high risk for death even after their acute illness. But among those who survived, And the other percentages here are among survivors, not uh, among all comers who were enrolled. Cognitive impairment, depression were very common, as you can see, up to 70% had some form of cognitive impairment. And uh, even PTSD symptoms affected 25%. uh, Disability in terms of inability to do ADLs was not as common because this particular cohort, we excluded patients who had baseline cognitive impairment and disability. So we were only looking here at new symptoms for survivors that weren't present at baseline. Psychological symptoms are, they affect a lot of patients and not just uh, patients of a particular demographic. You can see in this study that examined over 500 patients three and 12 months after survival from critical illness It didn't matter if you were young, middle-aged, or old. Patients frequently had symptoms of depression, and that's shown in the left panel, panel A, as well as symptoms of PTSD shown in panel B. Interestingly, the PTSD symptoms were actually quite a bit less common in the older patients than they were in the younger patients, but depression seemed to to, uh, affect patients regardless of age. So let's get back to our patient just for a minute. I told you I would uh, follow up with a scan. I also have some objective cognitive test results. This patient, uh, unlike many of our ICU patients, had pre-critical illness cognitive testing, not immediately before her critical illness, but at some point prior to in the years before her critical illness, she had been tested uh, with a cognitive battery. So we could objectively look at her test results after critical illness and she had testing eight months after and then three years after and compare those to her previous results and there are a couple things i want to point out here one is that this patient had superior cognition at least relative to the population of patients that were the same age and the same level of education prior to her illness and so then even though she had a major deficit that she experienced as a change in the way she was able to do her work and live her life. If we had just had this, these test results at eight months and 36 months and did not have her ba- baseline test results, we would have said that she was normal. Because on this, you know, I only show you IQ here. There's a lot more data available on these cognitive tests. But if you look at IQ, an IQ of 100 w- would be normal. And so actually at the eight month period, she was even a little, still a little bit above normal. So we would have said, oh, you don't have any deficits. But the truth is for her that she had significant decrements from where she was at baseline. And that affected her ability to live her life. The other thing I want to point out is that there was some recovery. She never got back to where she was at three years post uh, sepsis, but she did have some recovery over time. And so I think that's a promising finding. It tells us One thing that prognostically, not all patients are going to sort of stay where they are at their new uh, post-critical illness level of impairment. But it also suggests that maybe there's some things that we could do to modify this trajectory and that maybe we could enhance the ability of patients to recover if we better understand what's causing these impairments. So as I said, she did have at three years post sepsis, a follow-up MRI. And uh, I'm not a neuroradiologist here. I I don't know if there's anyone uh, dialed in that is, but it doesn't really take training in neuroradiology to notice that there's a significant reduction in overall brain volume at three years. And this correlated for her with her deficits in functioning. So she had reduced anatomical volumes in her brain, and also reduction in her cognitive test results. We've actually seen this in a, several studies. Uh, most of the MRI and, and brain imaging studies aren't very large, but there are studies that show that there's a correlation between change in volume over time and the severity, not only of your cognitive impairment post critical illness, but also of uh, the delirium duration during your critical illness. So I want to stop here before going on to the next portion and just highlight this really important study published in the New England Journal in 2002 by Terry Fried and colleagues that asked over 250 participants what their treatment preferences were based on the likelihood or the probability of a number of different outcomes. So what you see here, and and I think this is important because it's a reminder to us of what patients value, at at least in this study, 250 patients who were all patients who had been selected because they had conditions that made them at high risk for death. So they were patients that were likely to end up in the the hospital. They had malignancy, they had uh, COPD, and they had uh, heart failure. And when you ask these patients, well, what what, what are sort of your goals for recovery from an acute illness and how likely are you or what's your willingness to undergo treatment, depending on the probability of different outcomes, this is what they told us. And I'll, I'll walk you through it really quickly. First of all, if they were asked if they would be willing to undergo a treatment that was a low burden treatment, meaning a hospitalization without time in the ICU, no organ support treatments, their likelihood overall, or their willingness overall was high. So that's the purple bar there. But once the probability of death after receiving a low burden treatment increased, they were less willing. And that's not surprising. You know, if you say you have a 90% probability of death, Fewer patients are willing to undergo the treatment than if they had only a 10% probability of death. Now, that blue, the next uh, line down, the uh, blue sort shows you that their willingness to undergo treatments when the possibility of death was considered, if those treatments were a high burden treatment, went down, their willingness went down. So when they were asked, well, what if you had to be in the ICU, you had to be mechanically ventilated, you had to have dialysis, the numbers overall, regardless of the probability of death, went down. And they went down even further if the probability of death was high. But the point I really want to make with this is those lines indicating the willingness to undergo treatment if functional impairment or cognitive impairment was a high probability outcome. When you compare these four lines with each other, what you see is that as long as we're talking about a reasonably high probability of the outcome, like 50% or higher, the outcome they were most concerned about experiencing was cognitive impairment. In other words, they were least willing to undergo a treatment that would end with them surviving but being cognitively impaired and they placed a higher priority on that than they did on survival, and they were willing to be treated with a high probability of death more often than treated with a high probability of living with cognitive impairment. And I think this is important clinically for obvious reasons, but it's also important in terms of our research, because we haven't done a great job of including outcomes such as functional outcomes and cognitive outcomes in our critical care trials. Now. They've started to get better. We're starting to see some of these outcomes. But for the most part, we've focused almost entirely on mortality, even though patients are telling us that they really prioritize other outcomes as much as or more than mortality. So what do we know about cognitive impairment when we look beyond just a case report and we actually start to test a large number of patients? Well, these are data from what was called the brain ICU study. It was a multicenter prospective study that included over 800 patients who had critical illness with either respiratory failure and about 90% had respiratory failure in this study uh, and or shock. So the 10% that didn't have respiratory failure had to have been treated with a vasopressor to get into the study. And these were adults of all ages included in this study, anyone from 18 and up. And so you can see I've shown you the results uh, in three groups, those who are less than 50 years of age, those 50 to 64, and those greater than 64. And we, I did that purposefully because I want you to see that the outcome here, which on the y-axis is the overall cognition score on a battery of cognitive tests that were done at three months after critical illness and 12 months after critical illness, that outcome was impaired not only in older survivors, but in younger survivors as well. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time on exactly what these box plots mean in terms of how you interpret them. The Battery that we used in this test, which is called the R bands or the repeatable battery for the assessment of Neuropsychological psychological function, evaluates multiple domains of cognition. And then it gives you a score overall and for individual domains, such as uh, memory and verbal function, language, visuospatial function. But I'm showing you here on this figure the overall score. And that score is determined by their results as well as their age and their level of education. So these are th- a large body of normative data are used to give you a score. So it's sort of like a T score, except instead of a 50 being the population mean in this particular result, 100 is the population mean. And then that gray band, so the dotted line at 100 is where we would expect the average patient to be if they didn't have a change. A, a, Deficit in cognition and I should also back up and say that when conducting this study, we used actually a three step process to exclude patients who had evidence of moderate to severe cognitive impairment from even participating in the study. And we had about 6% of participants that were thought to have, based on a validated screening tool, mild cognitive impairment. 0% had moderate to severe cognitive impairment. So as I said, we expected that these patients, if they were normal, healthy patients prior to their critical illness, and if they had no deficits acquired during critical illness, to end up with a mean score of 100. The gray band there shows you one standard deviation above and below the mean. So over half of our patients should have been there in that gray band, but instead what we see is that only about a quarter of patients, because the top of these box plots just sit right around the bottom of that gray band. About a quarter of survivors at both three months and 12 months ended up with what you would call normal cognition. And as I pointed out earlier, some of those patients may have experienced a deficit, even though they look normal now, because they, some of them may have started with superior, but th- that's conjecture because there's no way to know. What we found in addition is that about a third to a quarter had impairment that was significant and that was comparable to that seen in patients with either traumatic brain injury and that dashed. Purple line there. If you follow it all the way across, you see the TBI that shows you the mean score on this exact same battery for patients in traumatic brain injury studies. And in older populations, we know where patients with Alzheimer's disease tend to score on the same battery of tests. And if you look on the far right of the slide, you see that amongst our survivors who were older than 64 years of age about one-fourth of them had impairment on this cognitive battery that was similar or worse in terms of severity to that seen among patients with Alzheimer's disease. So to sum up, what we found in the study is that cognitive impairment was actually common anywhere from a quarter to a third of patients experienced cognitive impairment months after their critical illness, and it was not just limited to those patients who were older. And then finally, there was some change from three to 12 months over time, but on average, there wasn't a lot of improvement. Now that may have been, and when we look into the data, we find that this is the case because there are multiple different trajectories. Some patients actually do improve over time. Others actually get worse. And so when you put them all together, you see that as a population, on on average, they look about the same 12 months after critical illness as they did three months after critical illness. One of the limitations of the study I just showed you and of most of the studies done in critically ill populations is that there's not an opportunity to directly measure their baseline cognition. As I said, in that previous study, we used a a three-step process that used validated tools for estimating cognitive impairment and then excluded those who had evidence of pre-existing cognitive impairment, but we couldn't actually directly measure cognitive impairment. Fortunately, there have been some studies that have been able to do this. And the Health and Retirement Study was one of those. And these data were published in 2010 in JAMA using the Health and Retirement Study, which is a longitudinal cohort of patients 50 years of age and older in the United States to determine whether there was an increase in cognitive impairment for those in the cohort who experienced sepsis. And at the time that they analyzed the data, you can see that there were 623 patients who had experienced sepsis, were enrolled in the health and retirement study, and had been tested at least one year before sepsis and one year after sepsis. And amongst those 623, some of them actually had testing Three years before sepsis, and some had testing three years after sepsis. What they found is that, as I mentioned, this was a cohort of 50 years and older, so there was, and, and it did not exclude pre existing impairment as we did in our previous study. So, as you would expect, there is some level of baseline cognitive impairment, and that's gradually increasing over time. Even after adjusting for that trajectory of cognitive impairment at baseline, as well as other potential confounders and covariates, they found that there was a threefold increase in the odds of moderate to severe cognitive impairment when comparing patients one year before sepsis with those exact same patients one year after sepsis. So we're no no longer just estimating pre-existing cognition here, but we actually know because it was directly measured that these patients got worse and that that was associated with having sepsis. In addition, we've talked entirely about studies of critically ill patients up until this point. There are a number of studies, and I'm, I'm showing you one here that I published a number of years ago that suggests that this problem is not limited to just patients who become critically ill. This is a smaller study of patients who developed community acquired pneumonia and were hospitalized and then survived and had cognitive tests 12 and three and 12 months after their critical illness. And it shows that patients had a significant level of cognitive impairment a year later, even though only 25% of these patients were admitted to the ICU, 75% were not and there was no significant correlation between ICU admission and cognitive function at one year follow-up. There was an association, you can see here, between age and comorbid illness. So those patients who, according to the Charlson comorbidity score, had higher levels of comorbid illness and were older, had the worst cognitive outcomes. But even amongst those who were younger than 65 years of age and had no comorbid illness, so this is, for example, the far left part of the graph here, there were about a quarter of patients, again, like our previous study, who had cognitive impairment similar in severity to that seen in traumatic brain injury. In a large epidemiologic study, they found that patients who were hospitalized with pneumonia, regardless of whether they were admitted to the ICU, had a significant increase risk of subsequently developing dementia. Interestingly, they also looked at other patients with infection, so not just pneumonia, but bloodstream infection, abdominal infection, urinary tract infection, and found that for the most part, that signal between acute hospitalization with infection and subsequent pneumonia uh, pneumonia held true even for those with other types of infection. Interestingly, when they looked at non-infected hospitalized patients, there was no signal. So this study suggested that maybe there's something about being acutely infected, severe enough to lead to a hospitalization that in mechan- mechanistically leads to increased risk for subsequent cognitive impairment and pneumonia. So on that topic of acute infection, these data were just published, uh, let's see, it's the 23rd. So these data were published in Nature yesterday. And I was able to put uh, this slide in this morning, post-acute sequela of COVID-19, and I think they had over 200,000 uh, VA patients in this data set. And I, I'm by no means showing you all of the symptoms and outcomes that they assessed at six months after acute COVID-19 infection. uh, There was a whole list of them and I encourage you to look at this nature paper. It's really interesting. But I I did wanna focus uh, clearly because it's the focus of this presentation on cognitive symptoms. And you you see here that they have memory problems listed. And also to compare that to the frequency of respiratory symptoms at six months post COVID because it's intuitive. Of course, patients, especially those who ended up in the ICU with COVID-19 are gonna be at higher risk of shortness of breath, cough, hypoxemia. But what's really interesting here, I think, is that the rate of memory problems in patients six months after acute COVID-19 infection uh, that led to either a hospitalization and that's shown in the blue bars here or to an ICU stay and that's shown in the purple bars was as high as the rate of hypoxemia six months later. So the, so the persistent long-term effects of COVID-19, at least in this huge data set from the VA, looks to be affecting the brain as often as it is affecting the lungs. And, and I would also point out that memory problems here were detected actually just as part of routine clinical care. They, they didn't do any special additional testing in this cohort. They just went into the data and said, "Okay, what, what do we know based on what is being collected and documented as part of routine care? And memory problems are not something you typically assess as part of routine care. So these are people that are that are having deficits severe enough that, that it's being reported and they're being referred, and it's ending up in their in their medical record for that reason. I want to also point out that the the cognitive impairment." that we see in patients, survivors of critical illness it is part of this larger syndrome called PICS or post-intensive care syndrome, but it actually is often not accompanied by other symptoms. So in, in this study where we assessed about 400... Oh, I, yeah, I think if you add all these numbers up, it's roughly around 400 patients. I can't do the arithmetic that quickly. And uh, what we found here is that first of all, 44% of patients And this was one year after critical illness, had uh, no symptoms of PICS. So that's great, but over half of them had some symptoms. And only four percent of these patients actually had the full syndrome of PICS, meaning they had cognitive, psychological, and physical symptoms most of them had one or two of the symptoms, and cognitive impairment was actually the most common of the three components of PICS in this study. So what does all that that mean? I think clinically, it means we need to be aware that the outcomes that patients experience after critical illness are are common, but they're also heterogeneous. So we can't just sort of assume that all patients are going to have the same experience, that some of them may really struggle with cognitive impairment, but have physical outcomes that are better than others, whereas other patients may suffer primarily with mental health outcomes or physical outcomes. And the best way to know what a patient's going through is actually to, to assess them, to state the obvious. And th- this has led, of course, to the, to the increasing use of post-ICU clinics or, or post-critical illness survivorship clinics, whatever you want to call it. There are more and more of these uh, throughout the country and throughout the world. All right, so I spent a a lot of time describing for you the the scope of the problem, the frequency of cognitive impairment, and and characterizing the patients who end up getting it. I wanna back up a step and talk about delirium and specifically think about delirium in terms of it being a risk factor or a predictor of cognitive impairment. And and it's intuitive that it would be because if cognitive impairment long-term or dementia is a a form of cognitive, cognitive impairment that persists over time, delirium is the most common form of cognitive dysfunction or acute brain dysfunction that we see in patients who are critically ill. There have been a number of studies, and I'm showing you just a couple here that were included in a systematic review published in JAMA in 2010 that looked at the subsequent risk of dementia for patients who had delirium versus those who did not, and this was primarily non-ICU patients, and they found that patients who who during an acute hospitalization have delirium are at increased risk for dementia after adjusting for multiple potential confounders, such as increased age and so forth. But what about in the ICU? Delirium is much more common in critically ill patients, as you all know from your own personal experience, Up to half of mechanically ventilated patients will experience delirium at some point during their ICU stay. So that that makes it a much more common acute brain dysfunction syndrome than you see in non-ICU patients who, depending on the population, may have it between 10 and 20 percent of the time. It turns out that when you look at the total number of days that patients had delirium during an acute critical illness, and you examine or analyze the association between the number of days of delirium and their long-term cognitive outcomes, you find that there's a significant association. Now, just looking at de- delirium, do they ha- ever have it or not, and long-term cognition or any other outcomes it is, is problematic in the ICU population because overall 70% or more may have had it at some point, depending on the patient population you're studying. So it's a really blunt measure. Did they have it or not? Days of delirium is a more granular measure and allows you to learn more about sort of the total burden of brain dysfunction in that critical illness population. In this study of 52 patients, so this was a single center, really sort of a preliminary study, we found that patients who had more days of delirium relative to those who had less had significantly worse worse scores on cognitive tests a full year later. And that's after adjusting for things like age, severity of illness, drug receipt, uh, sedatives, for example, and, and other characteristics that you would expect that might predict or confound this association. I don't show you this here, but apart from delirium, the other major factor that was a predictor of cognitive performance a year later was your level of education, which is not a surprise, but it becomes more interesting when I tell you that these test results on on the cognitive battery actually adjusted for the age of education. So it's not just that if you have more education, you're going to do better on a cognitive test. It's that if you have more education, you're going to have more reserve, and you're going to withstand the insults that occur during a critical illness uh, more readily than someone with less education. Now, these two look like the exact same graph but they're not, this is from a a subsequent study that included 325 patients in a multi-center cohort, but looked at the same relationship. Days of delirium during the critical illness on the X axis and overall score on a battery of cognitive tests one year later on the Y axis. And again, after adjusting for multiple potential confounders, the longer that you're delirious in the ICU, the worse your cognition is, even a full year later. And of the risk factors or potential risk factors that have been examined during a critical illness, delirium is really the only one that's borne out they're, they're consistently. There have been some studies that suggested that uh, hypoxemia, as you would expect, is a risk factor. And there, uh, but, but it's also not very common for patients to end up with severe prolonged hypoxemia. It, it, Maybe with COVID being the exception, and most critically ill patients were able to effectively prevent prolonged hypoxemia. And there have been a few studies that suggested that gl- changes in glucose are a risk factor, but by and far, by far and away, the duration of delirium is the most consistent risk factor examined during critical illness for subsequent cognitive Mm -hmm. impairment. And one risk factor that has never been associated in any study that I'm aware of or that I've seen, uh, even though you would intuitively expect it to, is overall severity of illness. So when you look at a measure like the SOFA or the Apache 2, you would think patients who have worse organ dysfunction overall, you know, renal dysfunction, cardiovascular dysfunction, respiratory dysfunction, would be more prone to having brain injury, but it turns out that that's not the case. Severity of illness scores are not a good predictor, nor is overall time in the ICU, but time with delirium is a significant predictor. I I wanna dive briefly into that question of delirium, that relationship between delirium and cognitive impairment, before I move on to talking about inflammation, which is the last portion of my presentation, and say that in this study, which is the only one that I'm aware of that attempted to sort of divide patients with delirium during critical illness into multiple categories according to the characteristics of their illness at the time that they were delirious, and then examine the associations with subsequent cognitive impairment, we actually found that with one exception, that being metabolic delirium, which we defined as delirium with uh, a number of different metabolic abnormalities either changes in uh, sodium, uh, renal function, hepatic function, uh, or glucose, I believe, were the, were the four categories that could, or the four changes that could land you in this bucket of metabolic delirium. Uh, with that one exception, which had no association with subsequent cognitive impairment, all of the other types of delirium that we examined were significant predictors of cognitive impairment three as shown on this graph, and 12 months later, which I don't show you here, but is in this, this paper in Lancet Respiratory Medicine. I think the reason that that's really important, it, it, and uh, it speaks, I think, directly to our what we can do for patients clinically, is that that category sedative-associated delirium, which we hypothesized before doing this analysis would not be a predictor of long-term cognitive impairment, actually was. And I think that's, that's really concerning because that's something that we directly influence. You know, I mean, we can try to reduce the severity of someone's sepsis. Of course, we're always trying to do source control and antibiotics, and, and there are lots of reasons to do that. But we often just give the, we, we give the antibiotics and we have to sit back and wait, and the sepsis sort of resolves when it does. Uh, but sedative delirium is directly under our control. And in this study, we found that the longer a patient was delirious while receiving sedation, and that's after adjusting for multiple other factors, such as were they also septic, were they also hypoxemic and so forth, the the worse off they were in terms of long-term cognitive impairment. All right, so let's get uh, now to the the, uh, most recent publication, that uh, was mentioned and sort of highlighted in the the, uh, title of this presentation and and talk about inflammation. So if I started backwards with the outcome and then went went, uh, towards the, the more acute phase of critical illness, we all know that inflammation, we have long known that inflammation is a characteristic of many patients' acute critical illnesses. I mean, sepsis and ARDS are sort of the prototypes of inflammatory Critical illness, but but even when you look at patients without acute infection, many patients with critical illness experience inflammation. And it's more complex than that, right? Because even if you look at uh, the the prototypical inflammatory phenotypes like like ARDS, you know that there are actually multiple sub-phenotypes and that some have uh, a hyperinflammatory syndrome, and whereas others have hypoinflammatory syndrome. And you can't distinguish uh, the two just by looking at their clinical features. So there are reasons to believe or hypothesize that inflammation occurring acutely, which we think of typically as a a systemic process, what could affect the brain. And this is a figure from a a Lancet paper years ago that, uh, that displayed this hypothesis. Systemic infection, or I could argue other types of critical illnesses, trauma, for example, does lead to systemic inflammation, and you can see that uh, by simply measuring inflammatory mediators in the blood, but that can also directly translate to neuroinflammation through the activation of microglia, and the effect of that neuroinflammation, the hypothesis is, would then be manifest acutely as delirium, but also could have an effect that ended up leading to lasting cognitive impairment. So we sought to test this hypothesis that acute inflammation was a risk factor for subsequent cognitive impairment in survivors of critical illness. And this cohort that was published, uh, actually, I guess this year, it feels like it was a while ago to me um, in the Blue Journal. And what we did is we assessed patients that were enrolled in two, concurrent cohorts, one that was NIH funded and uh, involved multiple hospitals, and the other that was BA merit funded and involved three veterans uh, hospitals. And then we combined those two cohorts. We had the same design in each of the two populations. We combined that all together and we had a total of 1,040 patients that were recruited that had a delirium assessed acutely while they were critically ill. And I should say that uh, the requirements were either mechanical ventilation or vasopressors. You can see here that about 90% were mechanically ventilated. We assessed them for delirium and then we also followed survivors up, uh, up to a year later in a measured cognition. You can see the numbers there, 586 patients were assessed for long-term cognitive outcomes And the reason that that number is just just less than 60% of the enrollment cohort is not because uh, that there were a lot of patients lost to follow up because actually there were not that many lost to follow. up it's primarily because I said, as I said early on, a a high percentage of these patients end up dying before one year follow-up. So we ended up with having over 80% follow-up of survivors. And what we did is first, we measured a number of inflammatory markers during the acute illness, and analyzed the association between inflammation and delirium, which we measured using the CAM ICU validated delirium assessment. We evaluated the patients every day for delirium that they were in the hospital, and we measured the inflammatory markers on day one, day three, and day five of the study. And what we found overall is that there was a highly significant association between inflammation, and and I'm only showing you one of the markers here, but the higher a patient's IL-6 was, the um, higher the probability of delirium was on the same day that the inflammatory marker was measured. And that was true regardless if we were measuring it on on day one or day five. So for example, on day one, we had this marker for all 1,040 patients And even after adjusting for severity of illness, age, exposure to sedatives, and other potential confounders, we found a highly significant association between delirium and IL-6. Similarly, we found a significant association between protein C and delirium, the highly significant significant again after adjusting for confounders. But as you know, the, the, the lower the protein C, the worse the illness. And so as you would expect here, the lower protein Cs were associated with an increased probability of delirium. So we thought, okay, we're on the right track. We thought inflammation and coagulation would be associated with delirium and sure enough it is. And we know that delirium is a predictor of long-term cognition. So certainly we're gonna see an association between inflammation and the, and the variety of markers that we measured and long-term cognition but it turns out we didn't see that at all. This graph shows you the association between IL-6, the, the mean IL-6. So we took all three days that it was measured, day one, three, and five, we took the mean, and we'll examine the association between that mean IL-6 in the hospital and, and cognition a year later after adjusting for potential confounders. And you might say, well, maybe, wait, maybe it's not the mean, maybe it's the, just the last, or maybe it's the max. I can assure you we looked at all the possibilities and none of them predicted long-term cognition. This was a, similarly for protein C. We found no association between acute protein C and measurements and long-term cognition. In fact, I'm, going to, I'm showing you here in this figure all of the markers that we measured. Most were inflammatory markers. Some were pro, some were anti-inflammatory markers. You can see protein C is there as well. And regardless of how we looked at cognition, whether we use that battery of cognition globally that I mentioned earlier, the R bands shown on the left panel, or a very specific measure of executive function or set shifting, the Trails B shown on the right panel, it didn't matter. Overall, we found no associations between the acute measure of measures of inflammation and long-term cognition. Uh, While I'm here, I'll tell you that there were other markers that were significantly associated with delirium. IL-8 and IL-10 had very strong associations with delirium, as did IL-6 and and protein C, as I showed you earlier. So how how do we sort of reconcile this? Well, this is my current hypothesis. We know that acute inflammation is very, very common during critical illness. And the data suggests, I've shown you today, and there are other studies that have reported similar findings that those patients who have acute inflammation are at higher risk for delirium. They're more likely to be delirious during that period of time that they're inflamed. However, there is a lot of time between acute inflammation and and when we measure these long-term outcomes, specifically cognition was measured at three and 12 months. And I, I would propose that only some patients go on to have chronic inflammation, whereas others do not. And so if we want to know if there's an association between chronic inflammation and long-term cognitive impairment, we have to measure the markers of interest at some time other than day five of their acute critical illness. And unfortunately, we didn't do that in in the study that I've shown you today. We are doing that in other studies that are now ongoing, but uh, we don't have results for that yet. And and just to show you that my idea that chronic inflammation occurs for some patients after critical illness uh, isn't just craziness, there are multiple studies that have measured inflammatory markers after sepsis and found two things. Number one, a a significant minority of patients, an important subgroup, do end up having persistently high inflammatory markers after they've recovered from the acute phase of sepsis. So these, these are data from Sachin Yende and colleagues at University of Pittsburgh who measured IL-6 and IL-10 and other inflammatory and anti-inflammatory markers at the time of hospital discharge for patients who survived sepsis and found not only that there were some who did have persistent inflammation, but that persistent inflammation at hospital discharge was a significant predictor of subsequent death in the year following discharge. So what, I'd like, what I'm what i doing next is actually to look not only at measures at discharge, but also at long-term follow-up. So we're collecting blood when we bring the patient back to do these assessments to determine whether some of them still have ongoing evidence of systemic inflammation. We're also doing some studies to directly measure neuroinflammation, although that's quite a bit more challenging uh, because there aren't a lot of methodologies for that. But uh, there's some PET tracers that allow you to do that. It's quite expensive and As you can imagine, it's not that easy to convince people who otherwise think they're doing okay because they're out of the hospital to come back in for a PET scan, but uh, that's one potential way of assessing, directly assessing neuroinflammation. I'm actually going to skip the next two slides just because I've I've come to the end of the hour, but but there are a couple slides here that show that the the, uh, story regarding inflammation may be even more complex because it may be that inflammation in and of itself is necessary, but not sufficient. And that you also have to have some other forms of injury, such as a uh, blood brain barrier dysfunction as measured in this study by S 100 B. But I, I'd be happy to send you email or send you these slides to look at this later. So I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, I think I've only left maybe a few minutes for questions, but I'd be happy to stick around uh, to discuss or to respond to email either way. i I hope that uh, this was informative to start with the case presentation, and then to talk about the frequency and characteristics of cognitive impairment in survivors of critical illness, to highlight that delirium, especially duration of delirium during the ICU stay is a risk factor or a predictor of subsequent cognitive impairment, and then to show you what we have learned from recent studies using inflammatory markers during the acute phase of critical illness and and measuring cognitive impairment in survivors. Thanks so much for your attention. I really appreciate it.